I mean, I don't think like I don't have like a power a set of PowerPoint slides where I'm like, I'm a lesbian and here are my lesbian experiences. Everyone in this class should be a lesbian, you know. I thought all lesbian teachers had those as a backup you know. <laughs> yeah. Common misconception. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Hello, hello, hello. Listen, that's my intro. You can't steal my intro. Soon to be Dr. Witt. <laughs> you know, it's such a good intro. So unique. So unique. I'm pretty sure Fat Albert said it first, Cassie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whenever I hear it, though, I think of you. Hello, hello, hello. Well, yeah. hello back at you all three times. What's going on? What's shaking? I'm enjoying myself much more. Definitely concur. I think you know this about me, but I get stressed at the start and the end of every semester because the start is trying to build up that routine. Mm -hmm. And I'm right there along with you. I'm like, oh, I got my mojo back. Like everything's kind of on the roll. I get to talk about fun topics instead of introductory, like history topics. Like Mm -hmm. everything's kind of just going well. It makes me happy. Good. Good. Well, I think I'm about to crush that uh, happiness. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm used to it. Go. So I saw in the news today that a bill passed in Florida called the the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is essentially banning schools from talking about LGBTQ plus issues. The Don't Say Gay Bill, you say? Yeah, the Don't Say Gay Bill. Are Are you Googling it? I am Googling it, but I'm listening to you as well. This is obviously, we did not talk about this before. And so this is new information for me. Yeah. I wanted to get your genuine reaction. All right. Tell me a little bit more about it. I mean, I just saw an article about it um, today, so I don't know too much, but I think essentially it's teachers aren't allowed to talk about LGBTQ plus issues in their classroom right so it's not just about like banning like set sex education for lgbtq plus individuals but it's also about just general classroom curriculum right so like they can't talk about things like the pulse shooting or anything like that i mean it makes sense cassie like obviously we know through history censorship has always worked whenever we try not to talk about something it's always gone right and never gone wrong not even once not even one single time so if i'm understanding this correct and listen to you it's like not just like sexual orientations or even like lgbt history or like the shootings which happen right right but also just like not even gender identity what it means to be a man what it means to be a woman how i would assume that also incorporates just those gender discussions in society as well yeah right i don't know how to I mean, I know how I feel about it. Let me be clear. It's, I don't understand why 
as of January, what, 28th, 2022, we're dealing with these types of issues still. We're like, gay people exist, but let's not talk about them. Lesbian women exist, but let's not talk about them. Trans people exist, but let's not talk about them. Like, that seems very odd to me. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a lot of the justification uh, coming out of the legislation is like it's not age appropriate, especially for kids that are fifth grade or younger to hear about LGBTQ plus issues. But we sure ask our preschoolers if the, you know, if my little boy, have you had a girlfriend yet? Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's not sexualizing anything. Yeah. Here are my initial thoughts then. I think it's stupid. I think censorship never works. I think there's probably some psychological harm that goes, especially if this is occurring in the state of Florida, if I'm understanding this correctly. Yeah, Florida. Then I feel very bad for Florida students of being like, yeah, let's, I feel like adults struggle so much more than children to understand these topics. Like you talk to a child and they're just like, I get it, right? They're just right. like, oh, you're you, you're a person. Go, you know, it's like, no, they literally have the mentality, like, it really doesn't bug me. You know, I'm happy for you. All right, time to live my life and play with my toys, right? Right. But this idea, like, adults are like, but what about the children? Oh. And, like, pearl clutching is just so, ugh. I mean, and you, and you know that there are children in Florida that have, like, two dads, two moms. You know, like, what are you going to do? Like, what's a teacher supposed to do? Like, parent-teacher conferences and things like that. I, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And, of course, like, it sends a terrible message to LGBTQ plus youth in Florida, right? Like, we don't want to talk about your existence. We don't want to acknowledge you. It's so sad. I mean, like you said, like, it's 2022 and we're still dealing with that. Right. Especially, like, whenever I think about LGBT issues and, like, the harm it can cause on, like, a psychological harm. I immediately think of, have you heard of the Trevor Project? I have, yes. Right, where they're dealing with um, LGBT youth, especially who are at risk of suicide, depression, anxiety, or rejection. It's just a constant fear and a justified constant fear if they're going to lose resources with their family. If there's no GSA, so the Gay Straight Alliances, or any type of like resource at your school, and your own teachers are forbidden to kind of connect with you on that level and like help validate that, like, that seems problematic. Like that's already a harsh situation. Yeah. Incredibly problematic. Yeah. Being LGBTQ plus, that's already a risk factor for severe anxiety and depression. And now they're just creating more barriers for students to get the acknowledgement or acceptance that they want. That they and need. it also, it, it reinforces some hatred. So like, right. So like some kids are learning this homophobic behavior from their parents, right? So like from their parents, they're here like, oh, this is kind of a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And then like they go to school and now we learn like, oh, teachers don't want to say gay. It must be a bad thing. And it's just like, there's a reason, like I can see a kid saying like, oh, there's justification with both my parents and my school and just my general community all feel this way. So now maybe I should pick up these ideas as well. Yeah. As a teacher, have you ever had a student come out to you, Cassie? Oh, Yeah. I've had several students come out to me. <laughs> well, okay, no need to brag. I've only had one. I'm sorry. I think it's because I I often share with students that I'm queer. And so they're like, oh, yes, this is a safe space where I can, you know, talk about my own identity and like experiences and things like that. Is it ever a big deal? Is it like early on? So I'm wondering, I can imagine a college parent, right? 
mm-hmm. or a parent of a college student, I should say. And I can imagine them saying, you're pushing your sexual sexuality onto these kids. Like there's no need to disclose who you're attracted to. How would you respond to that? I mean, I don't think like, I don't have like a power, a set of PowerPoint slides where I'm like, I'm a lesbian and here are my lesbian experiences. Everyone in this class should be a lesbian, you know? I thought all lesbian teachers had those as a backup <laughs> resource, you know? Yeah, common misconception. So like, I don't think I'm like forcing my sexuality on any of my students. Uh, I don't know, like making comments like, and like opening up the class for like discussion on like discrimination or, you know, things like that and sharing my own personal experiences. One, I think accomplishes that kind of like authenticity that we have been talking about or like making yourself appear like more real and human. And I also would counter anyone who has an issue with me talking about like my own queer identity with like just the importance of representation, right? So I've had a few students come out to me after finding out that, you know, I'm queer. I imagine that there are probably more LGBTQ plus students in my classes who never told me, but they still were exposed to, you know, someone who has that identity in their classes. Definitely. Like, I'm, I'm going to show you, when I was an undergraduate college student, I was facing a lot of uh, internalized homophobia and a lot of self-hatred, right? But I did appreciate those safe spaces, those safe zones, right? Although yeah. I was had, like, a very complex relationship with the community of, like, do I distance myself? Do I participate? How much do I engage? If I do something, how people will see me? Like, right of those, like, many obsessions of just worrying about, like, being seen as gay, right? That internalized homophobia. The teachers who are like, this is a safe space. And a lot of them, let me say this for any instructors, probably most of the instructors or people listening to this audience who are straight, a lot of that help and support and allyship came from straight professors. Yeah. It was this idea of like, no one's forgotten here. I'm going to like be here for you. I once like, there was a, a TA, a graduate student who led my social site class. He was amazing and cute very cute, but also just an amazing (laughs) teacher. Um, uh, And he made me so comfortable that like for a final writing project of what we could do, I was probably gonna do something safe and boring. Uh, But then like, I kind of hinted at like, oh, maybe what about this LGBT topic? And I had never seen a professor so pumped about an essay topic before and so enthusiastic and motivational. Like that definitely made me like, oh, that's so cool, man. Like, thank you. Like, ah. So Cassie, mm-hmm. you said you had multiple students come out to you. I think I've only had one or two. Um, and for those of you who are listening with Jesse, you're like, how can you not remember how many you had? Like, listen, it's not a big deal to me per se. So it just Yeah, like, I don't remember an exact number either. But yeah, it makes just me happy before. every time it happens. Yeah, or I think what is more common is not students coming out to me, but happens a lot more frequently, is when I have in-class discussions and a student, because I'm really big on storytelling, not just myself, but also having students share their stories and their experiences. It just seems so natural that they can talk in the classroom in Alabama for them to be, for a woman to be like me and my fiance, she and I are doing great together. Mm-hmm. Or for my guys to be like, yo, me and my boyfriend, like we struggle with this a lot. And it's never even on like psychology of gender or like a sex-based topic. It's mm-hmm. just like on general cognitive psychology or motivational psychology. Yeah. And so 
that I think is one aspect of creating a safe space and just a safe learning environment and community within the classroom. Like that's so powerful that I'm so glad they feel so empowered to do so. And maybe they don't think of it as a second thought. And, and maybe I'm just like being a narcissist and be like, I helped with that. But I do think there's a lot of classrooms where you can make very unfriendly and very like, uh, I'm comfortable with who I am, but I'm not sure I want to be that person right here or at least show off who I am. Right. No, I get it. I, I also think that from day one in your class, preparing and using examples that highlight that kind of identity. So like I have pictures of like, like, for example, when I teach social psychology and I talk about relationships and things like that, right? Those slides are full of pictures of, you know, people from LGBTQ plus relationships, right? So I try to do that or I think about like in statistics, for example, right? I've been teaching about like how to decide if something is a categorical or a continuous variable. So the example of categorical variable that I've been using is like gender identity, right? So I'm like, okay, so you want someone, you're asking your participants to report if they identify as male or female or non-binary or transgender. So just like having examples that highlight those identities, just like saying the words in the classroom or just having simple little pictures on your slides, I think it's just so important. Cassie, as you we were talking, I was thinking of a book um, written by Catherine, I believe it's pronounced Delganazio, D-L-G-N-A-Z-I-O, and Lauren Klein, called Data Feminism. And hmm. so it's this idea that we handle data from like a very heteronormative perspective, right? So this idea that is gender a dichotomy, right? It seems to be like very this versus some people who claim maybe from more feminist perspectives of like gender is on a continuum sexual orientation is on a continuum and how you handle your statistics and treat your variables matters how you treat race matters mm -hmm. and so like as i was thinking and maybe put in the show notes this is a great resource for someone who wants to get kind of more of a feminist perspective and something that you might not normally associate it with, with such as statistics yeah so. i can't believe you've never recommended this book to me before <laughs> listen i have to keep some trade secrets to myself okay right you, have, you know my um, birthday's coming yeah. up <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> definitely. I can definitely see places where my sexuality does come up because I do share it with my students. I just think if it's natural. So like, for example, in I'm going to bring up IO Psych. I'm sorry for bringing it up, but in the classroom I teach and I'm talking about different topics that exist. One such thing is sex discrimination, Title IX, discrimination in the workplace in general, both racial and sex-based as well. Guess what? Protection for gay people ain't so great. I'm going to make a joke about that in my class. Like, ah, looks like I'm in a bit of trouble, aren't I? Like, and yeah. it usually gets a laugh because like the best kind of humor has a, a strain of truth in it. But like it gets something in like, oh, I always hear about DEI issues, diversity, diversity, diversity. But it in practice and its real world consequences are something actually like, okay, maybe I need to listen up and not just be like, oh, another DEI thing. Are you ever scared to share your sexuality with your students, especially teaching at a university in, in the deep south? I'm from California and this is Alabama. And so my background is, you know, very what people consider like, ah, the leftist state, the very hippy dippy 
state. And even then, I would argue it's pretty conservative there and not as accepting of LGBT stuff there. What I associated before I came to Alabama, to make clear, and just in the South in general, is this idea of like maybe a lot of hatred, a lot of racism, a lot of people are just going to be carrying guns around. That happened to be more in Texas than in Alabama. So when I was there, Alabama has been much kinder. And I think that the stigma does exist. And I think that stigma was real when I first got here. So like my best friend who, you know, he had the concerns like you're going into place where you're going to be in danger. And not to say like, obviously there was one instance here, which I told you about where like, I was just trying to get my depression medication and someone on the street by the CVS was just like, and I'm like, oh, you too. You know, it's like, what the but that only happened once in my three years of being here. So that says something, I think. I would say for anyone as an instructor who's afraid to kind of reveal that part of yourself, I want you to know that's understandable and perfectly okay if you don't feel like that comfort zone immediately, or you might not ever really feel that comfort zone. Like, I don't know your institution. I don't know how your peers or your supervisors will treat you. But I will say this from the student and from a younger generation, they're much more nonchalant about it than I gave credit for. Like a lot of them are just like, oh, okay. And if you use personal stories about your, you know, a lot of traditional instructors will be like, oh, me and my wife. And, you know, when we're like me and my husband and my kids, right? It's very much the same way. Like as long as you have a relevant story to tell and it's not out of nowhere, it's appropriate. I agree. Yeah. So I'm often not like. I'm a lesbian. I'm a lesbian. You know, it'll be like and me and my girlfriend where, where it is like very natural. And like I try not to make a big deal about it. I think the most prevalent it came up is when I taught the psychology of gender, sex, and sexuality course I did. Definitely, yeah, I can and, see. And it's this idea of, maybe even tying it back to the JFM, but it's this idea that a lot of science on sexuality and what we know about sexuality, it's kind of a, we don't know. It's just like we have a very poor understanding and a poor statistical conception of how we analyze the data. But also, that population is much rarer and you know, or that sample is much rarer in the population, I should say. So a lot of the conversations, I think, have to be a bit anecdotal and a little bit more experiential, just because the empirical literature really isn't there and it's not really strong. So I don't want to be like, did you know that gay people are like this? When it's like, well, there was one study done ever and they looked at like, you know, 30 gay people. I just thought of a question as you were kind of summing up what we've already discussed. And it's this idea of, we talked about storytelling using anecdotal, anecdotal evidence as it's appropriate. So I was thinking it might help someone to like kind of figure out like, do you have an example or whatnot? And I can kind of go first and you can either add on to it or maybe you have something different. But the first thing I think of is this idea of dating culture, right? So like when you're talking about the psychology of love and romance and just how relationships develop, especially in social psych, right? Like that's kind of our shtick. It's like, we care about the situation and social relationship. I feel like I'm not sure if it's because I'm younger and more close to the age of students, but I feel like this can even go across age groups. Is there's like that dating app swipe culture where it like almost treats people like uh, how I've heard it described. It's just like clothes on a hanger, right? So you're just like moving clothes swipe 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 until you find something that you might like and then you look at it for a bit and then you just like let it go and get ghosted like i don't care what your orientation is i can do it within a gay context but like all my younger folk out there are like oh i've been ghosted oh i've been catfished and really talking about why is that the case and why is that such an issue Mm -hmm. um but also is history back was it really as glamorous as we think it was right was dating as pure and as easy as you know some older folk are like ah it was better in my time 
that's doesn't also seem to be the case are either and like even just doing that and sharing that i mean obviously i try to make sure there are boundaries so they don't overshare but like that's never been a problem where i've actually had students overshare and they're just like laughing and having fun but then they're like but think about the theory behind this and they just discuss and i love it yeah i can totally relate to that because i do something similar in both like my intro to psych class and my social psych class when i lecture on on love my lecture on love is continuously evolving and it's definitely one of my students favorite lectures i think that i give actually one semester a student recorded part of this lecture and submitted it to like a popular instagram account like an undergraduate instagram account where it got viewed like almost half a million times which was really cool Cassie, do you want to spread the word do you mind you know i'll i'll kind of like advertise for you would you mind sharing that link and even getting more views on it for anyone who's listening <laughs> Because if I'm understanding right, it's a clip of you talking or like having doing the lecture, right? And like just the students just so involved in it. And to so, get half a million views. Wow. So I think it's popular because when I give my love lecture, it's like a very fun but facetious lecture where I'm like, here's how you can use psychology to get somebody to fall in love with you and so the clip that got recorded was I well I stole this from the comedian Bo Burnham but like my advice for them like my last piece of advice is like lower your expectations regardless um within the context of like that love lecture I also talk about dating apps and you know the phenomenon of it and just how ubiquitous it has become in our culture and like and then i show them data about how individuals who are in who identify as lesbian gay or bisexual are much more likely to use dating apps to find potential romantic partners than people who identify as straight and have them like speculate on why that is and then like we have a discussion about you know issues of like proximity and how it becomes a lot easier to tell if someone is gay, if they explicitly say it on a dating app than, you know, trying to figure it out just by like looking at them or something. Definitely. And there's always this really interesting study. I wish it was done in an LGBT population, but I think it's even been replicated in 2010, but it was this 80s study by Clark and Hatfield. Mm -hmm. And basically it was this idea where they had trained research assistants come in or walk into the campus and approach people of the opposite sex and say like one of three things. And I think I'm going to probably misquote this or like not get all of them correct. But one of them, it's like, hey, would you go out with me? Like, will you want to date with me? Hey, will you go home with me? And the third one is, and again, so you can imagine this as a stranger approaching you. And the third thing that they might say is, hey, do you want to have sex with me? And there's a gender difference where... I believe in the original study, it was like a much higher percentage. It was like around 70 to 75% of men. If a woman approached them, a woman already approached them, said, yeah, I'll have sex with you. Um, wow. Can you guess how many women told me? So if there were 75% men who say, yeah, I'll have sex with you, how many women do you think told a random male RA? Yeah. Did they, like, what if she was joking? Or they, did they just say- I don't think they did it for joking. If you had to take any type of speculation, wild guess. Okay, so how many women genuinely say said, yeah, I'll have sex with you? Yeah, from a complete uh, stranger, complete male stranger approaching them on the middle of campus. I'm going to guess 3%. Ooh, no, that's way too high. A whopping 0% of women- said yes to the male RAs and like that's a gender difference but like we can speculate on like 
hey, is that kind of like, why does that exist, right? So, and they can almost talk about gender roles, right? Like, of, yeah. and it's interesting to note from what I recall of the OG study, um, and this might be completely off track or relevant, but what I recall from the OG study is that for the men who did say no, something that the RAs noted, the female RAs noted, is that there was always an excuse attached to why they said no. So they would never just say no. Women would just be like, no. Men would be like, no, I have a girlfriend. Oh no, I have roommates. Oh, oh no, like, right? Like, it's almost like this weird thing. Like you have to justify why you would tell a woman no to sex. Whereas women are like, you're a creep. Like, you know, like, they're just like, bye. They've uh, probably been asked that before by a random stranger. Just because this is psychology and I think that's kind of like a fun thing to talk to your students about. Yeah. Um, if you can, because it's just like, yeah, and I'm not sure if you ever bring it up in your class, but like it's really cool that I took the replicant in Denmark and it was like 60% men said yes. And again, 0% women said no. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that study. I will definitely be using that in my social psych class in the future. I wanted to connect something that you kind of said briefly before to what you said most recently for your lecture of love. And if I recall correctly, because I think you've even practiced that lecture on me for job talks and whatnot, you mentioned previously that you have a lot of diverse pictures within your slide. And more specifically, this idea that when you're even talking about um, love, and romance and dating, it's important to notice and recognize that a lot of our stock photos, even in books, are uh, heterosexual white couples most of the time, mm -hmm. right? And so what I noticed in your saying something I really want to emphasize is things that a teacher can do in their own work, right? And it's something pretty simple and straightforward. It's showing interracial couples. It's showing people of color of both the same sex and opposite sex together in love, happy. I feel like usually when you have people of color in textbooks and psych, it's always like around the drug section. And it's just like, ah, look at this. And it's just like, that's kind of... I've made that observation too. I am... I perhaps spent too much time trying to <laughs> pick out pictures that I put on my slides, like if they have people in them. And I'm like, I really want to make sure that the pictures that I'm putting on my slides are, are diverse. And it is so difficult to find pictures sometimes, especially like for that love lecture, like the pictures that I have now are, are definitely more diverse, right? So it's like couples of different races and things like that. But it took a while to to find like good stock photos. There's also an issue like in developmental psych where it's like parenting photos. It's so oh, hard to yeah. find like just black parents with their kids yeah. like together as like one big family group. It's yeah. always like usually like a single mother, like it's very rarely any black fathers ever. And I'm just like, that's kind of odd. And like, I've struggled finding pictures of that, which is like, it's so limited and like such a lack of what I can choose from. And I'm like, come on, y'all. Like, what the heck? Yeah. Yeah. So it can be like really challenging and time consuming, but I think it's worth it. As something as small as like the pictures that you are using on your slides I think can have a major effect on students. Like, I don't know if I ever had a class as an undergraduate student where I saw a teacher using pictures of a gay couple. Like mm. I, maybe, maybe in my developmental psych class, because we like had to debate whether or not like gay people are like good parents or not. And like the effects that it has on kids. Ooh, hold my hoops. I'll come into that classroom right now. <laughs> The best, uh, um, this is kind of a teaching story, but like in high school, my AP Gov teacher, we were getting political and I love him. He was a Jewish white ginger man. And I had 
a peer. I could say his first name. I'm sure it'll be fine. But I had a peer named Nicholas. And he was like this cool dude and really happy. And then you have the other student who was almost like your token Republican student or like that, like highly adversarial, white male, you know, just very, very just conservative. And I think that this guy, this conservative basically made the comment that like same sex couples can't raise children. And Nicholas basically was just like, I have two moms and you're supposed to be friends with me. What the f- are you saying like you know, I remember oh. like yeah he's just like I think I turned out all right with my two moms and that's the first time he ever talked about his parents I didn't know like nobody or at least I didn't know right like I don't want to say like I'm overly close to him but like that was such a powerful thing uh just like something like burn like, he was making <laughs> he's like get burned and I'm like a like stuff like that like teachers I'm not sure you should go that route maybe I'll, yeah. I'll cut out the name burn, for it. Yeah. but my government teacher was like burn and it was funny okay. it was very like, well. so this brings us I think to something else we should probably talk about like what do you do in your class to create spaces for students of all different perspectives, right? So like, what if you have a student who is like, being gay goes against my religion and like, that's my perspective, right? Obviously, I think as instructors, we have to maintain some amount of like objectivity. I find it so hard. I I luckily, like in my class, I haven't ever had a student be like, it's wrong to be gay and like challenge me on that. But like, we've definitely had conversations about, you know, things political in nature. And perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm extremely liberal and I've had conservative students in my classes. And I find it so hard sometimes to make space for those perspectives because I'm like fighting my own like personal convictions. I've only dealt with it again. Again, I can't speak for anyone else's experience. I've never dealt with a student who was homophobic that it came from a place of like pure hatred. Right. So let me be, let me clarify. I've dealt with homophobic students before. I've had when they turn discussions and be like, you know, in developmental psych, like, is this, you know, nature, nurture, bit of both type of deal, like how sexual orientation develops. And I've had students basically write in their discussions to me and like their assignments when I had assignments of like, you know, homosexuality is a sin. I feel very uncomfortable with this, blah, blah, blah. And when I like, I follow up with them and be like, hey, I know you mentioned this. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? It always comes from a place of lacking understanding, right? Not sympathy, not empathy, but they just don't know or they haven't, at least to their own awareness, they've never met someone who's LGBT. I do it in a way where just by having a conversation and talking with them, they always kind of tend on, on down the route of, and they'll be upfront about this and admit it. They will say, I struggle with this topic because my whole family believes this. And this is how I was raised. And I know it might not be right. I just also don't know how to deal. Like it's almost comes from a place where like they feel something is up or maybe like this idea of homophobia and their thoughts are wrong. But because their family supports it, their siblings support it. When you're the first person to ask, well, why do you think the way you think? And you put them on the spot like that. They're like, oh, this... Like you almost see like this uncertainty in their eyes, like this might be wrong. I'm not sure. And I don't think it's my job then and there to say, ha, I finally fixed the issue. But I think just having them reflect on it. I'm not going to say it's going to change the world, but students, again, just, I don't see them coming from like, you're disgusting, hate your It's just usually from, I was taught by this, by my mom and dad and they firmly believe this. And I've never met a gay person. You're the first. This is another reason why representation 
is so important, right? So it's not important just for students who also identify as, as queer. You're also providing representation to students who may be straight, but also have been raised with these ideas that like being gay is wrong and that homophobia is okay. And so you are providing an example of an individual who is like hopefully thoughtful and empathic and very human, right? So they actually have a face now to like attach to what it means to be someone who's queer. Providing that kind of good representation, I think is also really powerful. Yeah, I like to think of it as almost breaking the mold, right? So like yeah. there are the stereotypes of, and again, I can relate to this because I did deal with a lot of internalized homophobia, but this idea of gay people are a certain way, maybe they're predatory, it seems mm-hmm. really gross and icky and I don't get it. And that's coming from a gay person himself, right? So like, I totally get this kind of uncertainty of like, I don't know really what a gay person is. All I know is what I've seen on TV and what I've heard from my parents. As an undergrad, having people say like, no, this is okay. Or seeing representatives myself taking on leadership roles, being comfortable with who they are, being happy with who they are was for me inspirational. Like to see this definitely made me more comfortable in my own skin. Maybe this is too, again, narcissistic of B to say, but like both you and I, I'd like to think that we almost do the same for other people of just like, you and I try to make the classroom a very happy, laughing, fun place to learn. And like, I want them to say like, yeah, you could be a fun teacher and have a personal life and just be happy. Like you don't, it's not this depression. It's not the suicidality, even though those are real issues in the LGBT population. I think we need to show them that there is hope. Uh, sometimes it's really hard. Right. It seems so cliche, right? You always hear like, it gets better. We say that to LGBTQ plus youth all the time, I feel like, but it does get better. And I think representing that, that you can end up really happy and achieve lots in your life is good for students to see. And I think it's important to be very real with them, right? So I would agree it gets better, but I would also say that doesn't make it easier. Yeah. People will struggle. You will struggle. Your students will struggle. And so instead of just saying, ah, don't worry, it gets better. It's like, it's okay to feel how you feel. We'll work towards and build that better future. Uh, To me, that's all I like more, you know, I like concrete stuff. So just to be like, ah, haha, hippy dippy, don't worry about it. Like that's not, that's not helpful to me. It's like, what can I do now? How should I be thinking about things now? And having real teachers talk about their real experiences, the both the good, the bad, and the ugly is both entertaining because I like to laugh, <laughs> but helpful. Kind of going on to that though, I would say, let's uh, imagine an extreme situation of what you described. So a student saying something homophobic, but like outright middle classroom in front of everyone. I'm not sure if this would ever happen or how realistic it is. It might be like an outlier situation. I have my own thoughts. I actually know exactly how I would handle that situation. Um, But I'm wondering, I'd first like to hear from you. As long as they are, yeah, so like you're imagining an extreme situation where they're like yelling and being disrespectful. Yeah, I think like very cliche, almost unrealistic, but I could definitely see some, a student maybe one day snapping or just having a really bad day. And they're like, you know what? I'm choosing violence today and not the good kind. I mean, if they get like that disrespectful and violent, I will ask them to leave the classroom. I have in my syllabus, and I think you also have a similar policy that's just like respect where you can have a different opinion, but you need to be respectful of other people's like positions and identities and thoughts and opinions. Um, and I, I like won't, <laughs> I won't tolerate intolerance, um, especially if it's, if it's violent. 
I know there are teachers who are like, I want to be an authority figure. I need to set discipline. I need to set boundaries. I need to be firm. I think you and I both were listening to some teachers and instructors during a panel session mm-hmm. about like how important it is to be firm. Yeah. And I'm going to say like, eh, that's a little bit too authority. The way they were describing it was a little bit iffy, but I do agree to the point that there do need to be some boundaries set, healthy boundaries and also boundaries that cannot be crossed. Right. And so like, I have no problem. You said that you would ask them to leave. I would throw them out. I have no problem. Uh, and for those of you who are like, ah, my institution, they wouldn't like that. I completely understand. I completely respect that. Maybe this is just me being very petty, but no. If if an institution is willing to penalize me for throwing out a homophobe in my own classroom, probably not the place I want to be working at. And I know it's going to be harder for teachers who are already established in their institutions where they're like, well, I'm not on the job market. I'm not going anywhere this work. Completely understand, right? And maybe you could do kind of like Cass's approach of like asking nicely. But for someone like me, as soon as I'm on that job market, I'm going to be like, you know, how do you feel about LGBT stuff? Because I know there's like some institutions or even religious higher ed institutions that are hiring instructors. And like part of their criteria that you have to sign up and say, like, you believe in their mission statement is what you're saying. Don't talk about gays. Don't reinforce gay couples and all that. That type of culture, if I knew that beforehand, I'm probably not. Even if they gave me a job, I'm probably gonna be like, nah, sorry, no, I don't sign up for that. So as someone who was recently on the job market, that was obviously a major concern that I had. So every time I would see like a job posting on on like higher ed jobs or like the Chronicle or something like that, I would Google the school first and see if they had like a statement supporting LGBTQ plus individuals in their like college or university community. And unfortunately, there were several schools that that did not, right? Which private institutions, you have that that freedom to, to do that and, you know, have people make those statements, sign those statements, whatever. You'd be surprised by the number of, of schools out there who don't have statements about supporting diverse ways of, of living. So you know how in every interview, they're like, do you have any questions for us? Was that a common question that you brought up if they didn't have it in their mission statement? Or did you just not apply to those types of schools at all? Um, yeah, if they didn't have it, then I wasn't really applying to those those schools. I asked about like the climate in like the department and the university community, like the larger university community surrounding like LGBTQ plus issues, because I don't want to put myself in a in a position where I feel like I have to hide that part of my identity, and you know I plan to move with my partner. I mean, I, I just don't want it to be something that I have to hide. I did, I did that long enough in like high school, early undergrad. Like I'm not going to go back in the closet, um, especially not where I, you know, want to establish a career. Um, but I think it is important to, to ask those questions and I don't know, make interview panels uncomfortable potentially. All right. I think it's something that they should be prepared to comment on. I do have a worry though. And it's almost like the thing of like, where there is the greatest need is the most littlest incentive to be targeted. Specifically this idea of, I can imagine bigger institutions are one institutions or just more well-known institutions probably have more money to have more LGBT resources and kind of like have that community foundation. And I can easily imagine that like a lot more R2, more liberal art schools may have just less financial resources or may be in a community that's kind of like, not by the main city or kind of like in the middle of the country type of deal where you can ask them, like, can you tell me what support you provide for your LGBT faculty, what support or what resources exist for your LGBT students? And again, I don't think this is unreasonable. I think many 
faculty might be like, uh, actually, it's really not much. But I feel like based on kind of what you said, like if you had an institution like didn't have any resources, and I don't think this is you alone, I feel like a lot of LGBT folk were like, I don't want to go in a place that's not going to support me. Right. But then those are the exact types of places that probably need LGBT representation. Like I feel, I'm not sure, is this concern warranted or am I just being stupid? No, I think it is a concern. It's also, I think, reminiscent of something that irks me about a lot of liberals is like we like to complain about lack of like representation or resources or things like that, especially in the South. And then we're like, all right, the, the moment I can leave, I'm getting out of here, right? So like a lot of people aren't willing to like put in the work to create the change that they wish they could see. I agree with that. And I think I'm also guilty of having those types of thoughts, right? Oh, there are some too. days where I'm from California, my baby brother and my little sister, my grandparents are across the country. My best friend is across the country. Another best friend's in Texas, so halfway across. And me being in Alabama, it's like no shit to Alabama. It's like, do I really want to stay here or even stay in neighboring states here when I'm done? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's almost I'm guilty of that. Like, I kind of want to go back home to California. But does really California need any more LGBT representation, you know? And there's also kind of a very selfish idea, a very self-centered idea. And maybe you can like guilt trip me into this because I definitely feel it sometimes of like, I feel like it shouldn't be on me. <laughs> like, I feel like I, I want know. someone else to take care of the problem. I don't want to be the solution sometimes. I don't want to be the movement sometimes. Obviously, you and I have both dealt with advocacy in a lot of different realms from either pedagogy or an open science or just general civil rights, right? So like just the right to be us and the right to live. And I feel like I get that fatigue sometimes of like, Yes, I'm fighting the good fight, but like, do I have to be the change in Florida? Do I need to move to Florida? I know. It's like, like, oh, geez, I haven't even started my new job yet. Do I need to somehow go to Florida and like start fighting the good fight? So, yeah, that's when I feel pessimistic. When I feel more optimistic, because, you know, I tend to be a very cynical person. I might be misleading on this podcast by how hippy dippy I am. Like, oh, yeah, so everything great. I'm actually very cynical and jaded. But when I am feeling more hippy dippy and optimistic, I also think that it doesn't need to be a big act for the movement, right? You don't have to do these grand gestures or like fight this very overall thing. I think being queer, being LGBTQIA plus in itself, existence is just a form of resistance. Oh, beautiful. Yes. Yeah. I don't know where I'm calling that from. I've heard it before, maybe a long while ago. Um, maybe even from our lab partner, Joshua, where he just basically said, like, listen, us just surviving, we're already an anomaly in a system that's not meant to support us. We're in a country, we're in a government financial nation that is not meant to support us. That gay people throughout history, LGBT people throughout history have always been the ones kind of on the outskirts, have always been the ones in the resistance ends. And I think we need to compliment ourselves for that, right? Like that is something I'm not going to apologize for from our system about for. It's hard to survive. It is hard to survive. It's hard to be, it's hard to be me. It's hard to be you. It's hard to be yourself as a queer person. And so I also want to give grace for people like who are tired. I understand that. And I think that they need to give themselves a pound on the back that maybe you are going to a mainstream institution and you're like, ah, maybe I'm not working the lowest SES. You can still do stuff just by existing, right? And just show, I think this kind of goes back to our earlier point. Just show that, you know, out of spite, be happy. Out of spite, thrive. I'm a very spiteful person. (laughs) I own, 
No, when I talk about emotions, I love the emotion of spite. I think it's a great motivator. It is. (laughs) If you wrong me, I want to thank you because you're keeping me motivated because I'm going to do better. So since I'm already on a roll asking you questions, Cassie, Mm -hmm. I want to remind myself that, again, most likely than not, a lot of our listeners are straight. They may be allies. And so as they're listening to this, we've kind of given advice, like if you're an LGBT instructor, like kind of how to handle and navigate that. But I'm sure there's someone who's like, listen, I want to help. I don't know how to help. Do you have any advice for straight allies? Or do you even like the word allyship? So like it's allies, something that's too cliche for people who want to help that you may or may not like the label of ally. What advice do you have for them? I think a lot of the advice that I would have for allies is similar to like advice I would give to people generally is like increasing representation, right? So being really intentional with the content that that you teach. So creating space for discussions of things like gender identity or sexual orientation, you know, addressing in the research that you might present in your class, how it might have a heteronormative bias, those sorts of things, being really intentional, even with the photographs that you choose to include as part of your course materials. And then I think it's also good advice for anybody, right? So a straight ally or someone who is LGBTQ+, if you want to, you know, create and establish a safe place in your classroom, making it really clear that you have expectations for your students to be respectful, but that openness is also you know, desired that it's a space where they can share things about themselves, right? I I think a lot of it is just related to cultivating a classroom environment where students feel safe and comfortable. So perhaps another piece of advice is to just make sure that you being an ally isn't just performative, right? So you're not just telling your students, yeah, I support LGBTQ plus rights and identities and things like that. And then someone says something homophobic in your class and you don't like reprimand them. Oh, I like that a lot. And I would say even at a higher level beyond your classroom, when you're in faculty meeting, I feel like the idea of when DEI comes up and now you're with your fellow faculty members, right? Are you all actually talking about it? Or are you passing it off along to either a student or like it's a position that nobody really wants to take. So it's just like, I guess I'll take it. Like, is there actually passion there in a culture within, or maybe I should say behind closed doors? Yeah. And I feel like that's probably much more relevant for the more the, like we're talking about how you teach and your position going downwards in the hierarchy, but you also have to look at people at your same level and people above the hierarchy as well and kind of actions there. And I think having these conversations or kind of being like that pesky, like embrace being a bug, you know, just be a little mosquito and prick, prick, prick. But like, make sure people aren't forgetting about this. Make sure like, hey, let's not keep certain diversity issues out of the loop. I think it's something, especially when it's coming from someone who's not part of the community. Having a white person say like, we need to talk about black issues. Having straight people say like, hey, sexuality is important for everyone, right? I feel like it's almost demeaned or disregarded if you're someone from within the community and you try to bring it up. It's almost like, oh, of course you would say that, right? Of course you care about LGBT issues. You're gay, but like that doesn't impact any of us. Right. Versus if it's coming from the majority. To me, that that's substantially 
different or it feels different to others. No, I agree. And I think it's also really important whether you're straight or you identify as being part of like the LGBTQ plus community, creating space for the intersectionality of identity is also incredibly important, right? So I feel like as a white person, right, I a white queer person, but I feel like it's important to address that I am a white queer person, which means that I have a certain amount of privilege that like a queer person of color does not have. And so like me using my voice to advocate can be incredibly powerful. Do you think there's an ever, you you made me, I feel like all my questions kind of like you make me think of as you're talking about them, right? So like I said, I can never think of anything original. I just kind of write <laughs> off your quotes. As a, I don't even know if it's your take on this label, but I am a queer Latino, right? I'm a queer Mexican, but like I'm very light-skinned. Am I a queer person of color? It almost feels like sometimes there's like a, a marathon or like kind of like a who has it worse And so like, no matter what your identity is, there's always someone who has maybe double jeopardy or triple jeopardy of just like a black queer woman who's just like very dark skinned and maybe let's say very butch. So someone who doesn't fit the typical gendered stereotypes as well Mm -hmm. of like that triple impact. So like for me, if I were to say something and then they say something like to both call us queer people of color almost feels wrong. You mentioned this idea of not being performative, but being substantive, right? So this idea of doing more than just saying you're caring, but performing actions and creating these spaces. Do you like the term safe spaces or is that a bit cliche? But also, can you talk a little bit about, I think you have some experience as like a public declaration committee chair of like creating a space, not just within your classroom, but throughout our whole psychological building in our department. Yeah, could you share with any listeners kind of what you did? Because I feel like that's pretty helpful. And that's us as graduate students, right? You're not faculty quite yet, Dr. Witt. You can't yeah, leave me down just yet. But like, it felt like graduate students really took up the mantle in our department to make sure we're creating a safe, not just space, but a safe department. Yeah, so our psychology department here at Alabama has in the past couple of years had multiple graduate student-led DEI initiatives. And one of the ideas for like a DEI initiative that I have been in charge of for the last two years is what we call our public declarations of allyship committee. Um, And essentially, I mean, it is performative in nature, really, but it was like this short term kind of of committee where we were like, we want to select some sort of artwork that we can display in like offices and like in clinics, basically just around the psychology building um, and related, you know, office buildings where we're like, hey, this is kind of a safe space. And so we chose um, some stickers that are basically like, we believe, you know, like love is love, Black Lives Matter. And we went through a whole thing where we purchased a bunch for the department so people could like, you know, hang up these big signs or like put stickers on their doors so that students, if, you know, they're walking around the building or coming to office hours or something like that, that they see these things. And it was something incredibly simple but we've gotten good feedback on. And we modeled the idea after Alabama's LGBTQ plus services at the school. So they have what they call safe zones. And so through like the safe zone office here at UA, you can like do like a kind of training to get like safe zone certified, where you can like put a sticker on your door to tell students like, hey, this is a safe space for you to like express that identity or like share that. And so 
we wanted to expand that to multiple other like identity categories. And so that was the purpose of these like public declarations, right? So like walking into someone's office, you see like these are the kinds of things that they say that they stand for. I like the idea of safe zones. I implement the idea of safe zones. For some reason, I just don't like the term safe zones itself. Like I feel like saying it almost gets students to like roll their eyes and be like, like this idea of like a very snowflakey lefty type thing. And I feel like it's almost the word's been poisoned by, I don't want to get too political, but I feel like it's been poisoned by certain media on a certain side of the political mm-hmm. aisle. We'll just leave it there for now. Maybe we'll get political later on. But like, it feels icky and I feel like students might yeah. be like, oh, safe zone, snowflake. And for me, the whole idea is to create this, like what we've all what we've been talking about this whole time is that the community where people feel okay to be themselves. Like, I don't think anyone would ever go against that, but I feel like explicitly calling that almost takes away from the impact of it, or at least it almost dissuades some people from wanting to participate in it. I have had undergraduate students tell me before that they think the safe zone language is like cringy. Like they don't like it. It is kind of cringy. I'm good. That's my hot take. I'm sorry, listeners. I think the safe zone language is cringy. I feel like you can implement these ideas without saying this is safe. I'm like, yeah, no, do it. Don't, don't say it. Yeah. I don't know what alternative language to suggest though. Does it need a language? Like can't, can't you do what you've been doing so far and it's still accomplishing the same goal of making students feel at home and comfortable without having to label it the safe zone? Yeah, I guess so. I think the idea, right? So when you get like a safe zone sticker or whatever for your office, it's like our mascot, but a rainbow. And it says safe zone, right? So you're imagining just like maybe putting a rainbow sticker on your door or something like that. Yeah, that's right. I guess I'm imagining a teacher who's just like, my classroom is safe and this is the safe zone. And you all need to be very careful because we're all very safe here. Like maybe it's a caricature, but like, it's definitely something that I evoke in my mind when I hear it. And I'm just like, uh. yeah, but I do want to mention something a little bit before you you and I were kind of mentioning like this criticizing performativity and then the hypocrites that we are, you're just like, we did the sign thing or you that led the sign thing. And that yeah. was my question then it's kind of almost contradicting everything you said. Is there still some use or utility in the performative explicit aspects? I think so. Right. I think. The issue becomes if you are only doing things that are performative in nature, right? So if you're- 100%, 100% agree. It is necessary, but not sufficient alone. Right. So like I think about my experience. Okay. So we're going to say that the safe zone language is, is cringy or whatever. But I know when I started off as a grad student here at Alabama, when I would go to a faculty member's office or something, and I saw that little- rainbow safe zone sticker I was like oh that's really nice to see right so sometimes like those small performative things like these public declarations of allyship I think can be useful but it can't be all that you do right so if you're not working to you know change the system or you know you're not advocating for your students or or your peers or anything like that like that that's where it becomes problematic that's where performance becomes problematic Yeah, I would say that if you're in a department that really doesn't do these sorts of things at all, these public declarations are a great first step. 
for our department, I think we've been kind of pretty open up for fellow graduate students and even with the public like that, like UA and especially our sector department sometimes do struggle with DEI stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we really even, we weren't in the middle of a movement. We weren't towards the end of the movement. We were really inspired by George Floyd's death to really initiate and like take a look, long, hard look at ourselves. And so I think at least for our stage of like kind of where we were at, was that we needed just establish that we care about DEI in some certain way. And if right. that was through science and being performative a bit, at least it was a first step. At least it's building these very visual signs to try to articulate to people who are walking by, not just students, but to remind graduate students and the staff, like, all right, yeah, we're in this community that is welcoming, that is caring, that we need to do stuff. So we've obviously been talking from our perspectives, being educators in the United States, where we have the ability to talk about these issues unless you live in Florida and <laughs> share experiences as students and things like that, right? Where it's not illegal to be a member of the LGBT community. But what kinds of advice do you have, Jacob, maybe for individuals who don't have that luxury, right? So they live and teach in a place where it's not okay to talk about those things, right? Where it might be illegal to talk about LGBTQ plus issues. I think what is probably a safe bet for you and I to both establish from the get-go to anyone who's listening, it's that take what we say, I guess, in this response, like with a grain of salt, because we're kind of talking out of our element here. At least I'm going to be talking out of my element here because this is a very huge issue and probably could be an episode in of its own. Like I can imagine you are a queer instructor and you are in Russia. You are a queer instructor and you are in China. You are in a queer instructor and you're in a community or a school or a private school or a religious school even in America. How do you navigate that? And I don't think I actually have an answer. I want to acknowledge that it is issue and like what we are presenting is kind of like an overly optimistic view of like, here are all the little things you can do. But I think we can at least acknowledge some of the problems that they face. And maybe if anyone's listening and kind of wants to send us our, their thoughts, I think that might be helpful. But I can imagine that's even dangerous for, we were talking about dating apps earlier, right? Mm -hmm. For the queer community, those play a special role, right? Like traditional dating doesn't work as well for queer folk, even prior to COVID. Like we tend to use dating apps because that's easier ways to find a community mm -hmm. of people like ourselves. And if you're online and you have your face up there, maybe college students are also on there. Maybe community members are on there. I feel like one, it's be very careful probably. And I'm sure people who are listening to this, they don't need advice of like what to do, but like, I can definitely see a fear of just like being yourself in your private zone of we're just trying to find love. And like, that's almost bleeds into your work life when you don't want to. So at the very least, we want to make sure we create this quote unquote safe zone in our podcast listening community that if you are going through some stuff, if you want to talk about it, or if you want to just share advice, your own stories for people, you know, that you feel like might help others. I think our contact information is played at the end of every episode. I would personally love to hear from someone like that of like how they've navigated these situations or how their friends have navigated these situations. Yeah. Because I want it to be a place that actually helps teachers. Like, I don't want you and I to have like listeners show up to, you know, our little discussion if we were panelists and we would, <laughs> I don't want people to show up randomly and like get very fluffy feedback that they can't use and isn't helpful. Yeah. I want to help people like this. I just don't know how. Yeah. And I think one goal that you and I had in starting the podcast was that we wanted to hopefully create a community of individuals who care a lot about teaching 
who could learn and grow through conversation with one another, right? So hopefully we can establish that kind of community. So please do reach out to us if you have advice that we could potentially share for people who who are in that situation where they want to create that kind of safe, <laughs> inclusive classroom environment, you know, for themselves and for their students, but but feel like they cannot. So Cassie, you and I talked a lot. We're on our fourth episode, huzzah. For anyone who's listening, we did not actually plan on doing the being a gay teacher part. We had something completely different in mind. But Cassie's Florida article, it got something stirring at me. I'm like, you know what? Let, let, let's go into down this route. Yeah, this but, is all ad-libbed. <laughs> this is all ad-libbed. We, like, <laughs> we, didn't pre- we did not prepare for this at all. I don't think anyone's surprised by that realization. They're like, yeah. we can tell. We know, <laughs> sweeties. We know. And I'm like, yes, I'm glad you recognize that we're only human, Uh, but it was fun. And I think it was interesting. And I think it's a topic that we can bring up again in the future, because I think there are multiple facets of it that we brought up, but we didn't really explore deeply. So Cassie, like, if you had to kind of sum up some of the main points for everyone who is listening, like, what are some key takeaways that maybe not even for them, but that you took away from this conversation? Um, I think that for me, the biggest takeaway was... I think that this episode kind of forced me to consider advice that I would give to allies. I think a lot about what my queer identity and sharing my queer identity in the classroom can do for myself, my students, and other people who identify as queer, (laughs) but I don't really think about the straight people (laughs) all that often. But there are plenty of straight instructors, I think, who want to establish those sorts of inclusive norms in in their classrooms as well. And so like being forced to like consider what advice I would have for, you know, people who are straight. I would just like to end with a story that I hope you appreciate, Cassie, because I'm not writing this by you and you definitely have to include this. Uh, Okay. That for one of our lab meetings, I led one in which... I described this almost moral decision-making. So you can imagine that there's like this trolley problem, um, but the modern day situation is you have an AI, artificial intelligence controlled car, and you have the choice of like, if we could program this car to make one of two options, and each option can either consist of women, men, young, old, criminal, lawyers, pets, of like what kind of decisions do you make for the car to crash into one and not the other? At the end of the results, it tells you kind of like who's your most killed person and like basically the people you care about least in the society. Um, And it's really cool. And maybe we can even link to this for those of you who are interested in kind of finding out your own moral decision making. And it's just fun for me. But Cassie, your number one person who was killed across all your scenarios was what was it? A white straight man, a white business straight man, I think. Yeah, white businessman, white businessman. So, yes, Cassie, I think you need to think more about your straight white male (laughs) allies and not throw them off the bus. You know, I just have really unconsciously created friend groups for myself where, like, everybody's gay. And (laughs) Hey, we build our communities. (laughs) We really do. On that note, Cassie, this is our fourth episode. If you made it this far, 
genuine thank you. Hopefully you don't think we're too crazy and that you follow along with us for this ride. We have a lot of ideas. We have a document with like 10 ideas already of that are fully fleshed out and probably many more that we could just think of on the spot. Like, oh, that's interesting. So I'm excited to go on this adventure with you, Cassie. So it's exciting that we're doing this. I'm excited to go on this adventure with you, Jacob. And I can't wait to, to see where this leads us. Huzzah. Hello, hello again. We just wanted to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.